Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, the disciples came to you on one occasion and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And with them, we would say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Show us in these weeks ahead as we work through one of the highest privileges that you have ever given your people to approach your throne of grace to find help in time of need. Thank you that we can praise you in our prayer. We can offer you thanksgiving. We can come with supplications, needs that we have, and thank you that we're able to intercede for others. And so tonight, as we open your word, open our hearts. Teach us by the Spirit of God what he would want us to know and how he would want us to apply the truths that we will examine. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If this is your first night, this is a course, again, on basic discipleship. There's 21 handouts. This is the fourth handout. And the handout typically takes anywhere from one week to five weeks. I think this is a four-weeker, but we'll see. It could last longer. All right, so this is what we'll be doing for the next four weeks, all right? The Christian and prayer. Now, we have several objectives that I have spelled out here on page one for you. First, to understand the nature of prayer. What is prayer? Secondly, to ascertain if God answers the prayers of non-Christians. That's an important question. Three, to be able to state four reasons as to why we should pray. Fourth, to discern the different types of prayer illustrated in the Scriptures while examining five common hindrances to answered prayer. Some of us, we just don't see our prayer answered like it could be. And we're going to look at some of the hindrances during our time together. That might be the most valuable time that you might spend in this study. Five, we want to consider the mechanics of how to pray. It's interesting when you hear people pray and, you know, how, how do you pray? I mean, how do you speak to God? What are the mechanics? God actually spells it out in Scripture. And then we're, with all these handouts, we're going to memorize two Bible promises in relation to prayer. All right? So first, just by way of introduction, there's no possible way to emphasize enough the importance of prayer. Andrew Murray, and by the way, if you've ever read anything on prayer by Andrew Murray, he's superb. He, he was a great writer in the 19th century, and God had just given him a burden in the body of Christ for prayer. Andrew Murray, the great Reformed preacher of the 19th century, said, God works only in answer to our prayers. It is in prayer that we change our strength for the supernatural strength of God. John Wesley said something very similar. He said, in fact, he said, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. Now, I don't know that I would totally agree with that statement because there's some things God's going to do whether we pray or not. But most of what God does in your life, in my life, and in the work of His kingdom is done in direct result of prayer. The great pastor and preacher, Dr. R.A. Torrey, wrote, Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies beyond the will of God. Prayer is one of the greatest resources God has given us, very often the least used. In this lesson, I hope that we will understand the truths God has revealed concerning the nature of prayer, our need and privilege to pray, and typical hindrances that keep our prayers from being answered. So let's just start by way of definition. What is prayer? Well, prayer is simply defined... I think if you read a lot of passages of Scripture, you could say it is talking with God. Prayer is a dialogue between two people who love each other. 
Now, when you're in love with someone, you want to speak with that person. You want to spend time. You want to hear what they think, what they say. And they want to hear what you think and what's on your heart. It's much like that in our relationship with the Lord. God's unconditional, unchanging love for his people is emphasized throughout the scriptures. And so God recorded through Jeremiah the prophet of his never-ending eternal love for believers. Why don't you turn there? Let's go to Jeremiah 31. Find the Psalms. If you're new to the Bible, it's dead center. And then scan off to the right, and you will soon hit Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah uh, was a pre-exilic prophet. Uh, If you know at what time in Israel's history a prophet preached, it will make the book come alive for you. And so he's preaching to um, the southern kingdom before they are carried away into exile, and they're going to be carried away for 70 years. So he deals with issues in reference to that, but he also deals with just God's faithfulness and what God's plans are for the people of Israel in spite of their inconsistency. And in this section really starting around chapter 31, he speaks here of God's unchanging, eternal, forever love that he is just committed to this people. In fact, if you notice how the chapter opens, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. At what time? Well, he's talking, if you look right above it in the verse, at the last verse of the previous chapter, in the latter days you will understand this. So he's speaking about a time frame in human history. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's in the future. It's never happened. The description here parallels what you will read in the Revelation. The time of Jacob's trouble in the New Testament we call the Great Tribulation Period. And it's the time in human history that God is actually setting the stage for. For it to take place, God has to gather the Jews from across the world and bring them back into the land. People say to me, I wish I lived in biblical times. You're living in biblical times. You're living in the times the scriptures wrote about, that men dreamed about, that men preached about for centuries that God would gather physically because in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse, the Jews would be spread to the four corners of the world. And God said he would gather the Jewish people at the end of time. And that's what we are seeing happening. It's phenomenal what has happened in our day. And, and then after the church is removed, and if that's new to you, you might want to listen to the series on the Revelation that I've done or just maybe a single sermon like 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18, that might be useful to you. But after the church is removed, this seven-year time frame known as the time of Jacob's trouble will unfold. And so he begins to describe this where Israel will be my people. They've abandoned God. God has not abandoned Israel. In Romans eleven twenty six, that Paul writes about, again, in the same time frame, when Israel will acknowledge that God's Son is indeed the Messiah. So he goes on in this chapter, and he he describes this uh, incredible time frame that has yet never happened. He describes in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Again, this is the function of Jacob's trouble. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they'll not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. 
He said, well, that doesn't seem to have been fulfilled. It hasn't, except in a remnant. God doesn't say there's a total hardening of Israel, just a partial hardening, Paul writes of in Romans 11. So look at verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast out all the offspring of Israel. God is describing an everlasting love, a love that just never quits. That's why he says here in the third verse of Jeremiah 31, he couldn't have said it any plainer. The Lord appeared to him. Really, you'll see a little, if you have the NASB, you see that little mark, little number one, in Jeremiah 31, three, and it brings you out to the margin. I, I think the wooden rendering is a little bit better. It's a little more literal. He appeared to me. He's talking about Jeremiah. The Lord appeared to me from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And the you again in the context as I just drew out was the people of Israel. So God loves his people with an everlasting love. And Paul takes that same theme and he applies it to the church in Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ? And he goes through every conceivable category in all of the universe that you can think of. He says, I'm convinced neither life nor death nor things created and so on can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So it's important when you think about prayer to think about God's everlasting eternal love. Two, there, David, who fell God with both murder and adultery, wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God's unchanging love in Psalm 103. Listen to these words from Psalm 103 in verse 17 here in your handout. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Again, it just doesn't quit. Jesus revealed in his high priestly prayer that God the Father loves those who are born again, his people, as much as he loves his own son. That's something to think on. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. In them, and I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Think about that. He wants the world to know as seen by the unity of the local fellowship. He's not talking about the unity of Christendom. This is a verse ripped out of context all the time. It has nothing to do with that. And so, you know, we're supposed to gather with this denomination and that denomination and all their heresies and all their false teachings and just be one. No, there's a place for biblical separation. He's talking about those who are genuinely born again. And the expression of that, of course, should be in the local fellowship. He's just saying very practically, he wants the world to see our unity, and that unity will show the love that he has for us, and his love for us, he says here, is even as you have loved me. He loves us as much as he loves Jesus.
let that sink in. God does not consider those who have met Jesus Christ in salvation to be His enemies, but now as forgiven people to be His friends. Uh, turn to John chapter 15 for a moment, John 15. The verse is here, but I think it might be helpful to turn there for a moment. John's Gospel, the 15th chapter, John 15. This is the uh, night before he's betrayed. Uh, chapter 13, of course, begins the uh, time in the upper room, and, and it ends in chapter 14. And at the end of 14, they get up and they leave. And in 15, they're transitioning from the upper room, and they're headed towards Gethsemane, and where Jesus is going to be arrested that night. So that's important to put those things together. We just read from John 17, which did not take place in Gethsemane. That was another prayer altogether that night. That happened before they arrived in Gethsemane, chapter 18. But here in John 15, verse 15, he said, "'No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you.'" Now, it's one of those not buts in Scripture, not this, but this. In fact, he's already stated a similar one um, back in um, chapter 6 in verse 27, there he said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for in him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Now, he's not teaching that you don't work for physical food. That would contradict his teaching otherwhere in plain statements like by the Apostle Paul, the man who doesn't work shouldn't eat, not the man who can't work, but the man who won't work shouldn't eat. That's what Scripture says. But he is saying by way of priority, spiritual food is even more valuable and more important than physical food. That's one of the functions of fasting. I've preached a sermon on fasting. We go through 10 reasons why Christians should fast. And one of the functions of fasting is it puts in perspective the importance of spiritual food, of the things that really concern God. So Jesus is not saying that you're not my slaves. He repeatedly teaches in the Gospels that he that would be great among you must be the slave, the doulos of all. But he is saying that you're not just slaves. It's, again, one of those not buts, like Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. I don't want you to wear, to dress this way, but I want you to be this way. I don't want you to braid your hair and wear gold and pearls, and all, but I want you to do this. He's not saying that a woman can't braid her hair or wear gold or pearls. It's an issue of emphasis, and, and that's so clear in the original, it doesn't always come out in the English text. We are slaves, but we're more than slaves. We're friends. Now, think about that. You have a good friend. What makes a friend a friend is not they don't just love you. They like you, right? They, they, they like you. Jesus likes you. He's your friend. He wants to have that kind of a relationship with you. And when you really let these truths renew your thinking, it changes your prayer life. You want to talk to someone who likes you, someone who loves you. 
You want to spend time with that kind of, oh, prayer, you know, it's a burden. Not really. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's a friendship. It's a love relationship. In the thinking of the ancient world, number five there, a slave could be a useful and trusted tool, but could never be thought of as a partner. In addition, in the Jewish culture, the relationship between a disciple and his rabbi, his teacher, was not expected to be a friendship. Yet the Lord Jesus described the measure and quality of his love for us, his disciples, as a love that treats servants as friends. That's the doctrine in the New Testament of reconciliation. Go to Romans 5 for a moment, Romans chapter 5. Um, Paul is describing this great truth. When, when you think of some of the great theological catchwords, you should think of like redemption and justification and reconciliation and propitiation. And these are all important theological truths that describe God and how he thinks about you. And the word for our being a friend of God, not at hostility with God, is the word that's translated reconciliation in the epistles. So Paul says in Romans 5, for while we're still helpless, 5 verse 6, while we're still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we're enemies, we're reconciled, the paraphrased version said, while we're enemies, we're made friends, because that's the nature behind this word reconciliation. While we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul is reminding us that the friendship that God makes with us is not temperamental, it's not inconsistent, it's everlasting. He's saying, look, if, if God could do the harder thing, if while you were helpless and that you couldn't save yourself, if while you were sinners and that you missed the mark of God's righteousness, if while you're ungodly and that you were a rebel, if while you're an enemy, God made you his friend, much more having been made his friend, He'll save you in the future. There are three tenses, of course, to salvation. I think most of you know it. We've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We are being saved in the present from the power of sin as we grow up in Christ. We call it sanctification. But someday we'll be saved in the future from the very presence of sin. And Paul is just assuring us of this eternal friendship that can never be broken because if God can do the harder thing, he will certainly do the easier thing. If God can save his enemies, certainly he will keep his friends. So when you think about prayer, you're thinking about someone who loves you with a love that never quits, with a friendship that never, ever, ever breaks. So with prayer, number eight, simply defined as being a dialogue between two people who love each other, the prophet Jeremiah was told by God, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Okay, point B here on the outline. Prayer is the channel for appropriating God's resources that we might walk with the Lord and please Him. We read here from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, he's talking about Jesus, 
Some English translations put great high priest in caps, the first letters, because they, it's in reference to him. That's obviously a publisher's choice. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." So as Christians, we have no priest but Christ. This was one aspect of the Protestant Reformation. Besides the five solas that you see on the stained glass window behind me, one of the key emphases of the Protestant Reformation was the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer is a doctrine taught in the New Testament that describes the fact that as a saved person, you have direct access to God, there's a vertical aspect, and there's a horizontal aspect in terms of serving the Lord. And so we don't go through a priest. You are a priest. I may not have a collar around my neck, but I'm a priest and so are you if you've met Christ in a personal life-changing way. So we have no priest but Christ, and he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, or you could translate it our infirmities. There's not a single English word that captures the full nuance. In fact, as you turn the page, the term weakness is used in reference to our physical infirmities. Like in Galatians 4, Asaneo, Paul uses it. He describes this weakness he had. Remember, he had an eye problem. And he said to the Galatians, man, if you could have plucked your eyes out and given them to me, you would have. That's how much they loved Paul. They couldn't obviously do that, but it's used in reference to physical infirmities. It's used in reference to intellectual infirmities as seen in our ignorance in prayer. And we'll speak about this later in these four weeks together, that when you don't know how to pray as you ought, the Holy Spirit intervenes. And how does he do that? And what does that look like? We'll be discussing that in detail. And then our moral weaknesses. Paul uses the word there, the weakness of the sinful flesh within. So Jesus, three, he felt our physical infirmities because he incarnated himself in human flesh. And so we find that Jesus became thirsty, uh, woman at the well, John 4, hungry, uh, after those days of fasting, tired, and he experienced pain. He felt our intellectual infirmities in that in the union of his human and divine natures, each of the natures retained its own attributes. So when he embraced perfect humanity, it did not make him any less God. And in retaining his undiminished deity, it did not make him any less human. That's an important truth, and if that's something you really want to study and explore, I have a whole course on it that I've taught. It's in the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's called Christology. Christ, who understood our moral frailty, or I skipped one. Six, this is why Jesus, on the one hand, can be seen as knowing everything, and on the other hand, not knowing everything. There's two good examples in Matthew's gospel. Go to Matthew 17 for just a moment. We'll look at these two examples while we're here. Matthew chapter 17. Uh, they came to Capernaum, verse 24 says, Capernaum is a really important town. It's called in Scripture the hometown of Jesus. 
It's one of the most exciting places for me in all of Israel to visit. And God willing, we're planning to go in 2021. They gave me some dates in May. I don't think May is going to work, but we're looking at more realistically September. But one of the places you go to is the hometown of Jesus. You say, I thought Nazareth was his hometown for 30 years. But then when he began his public ministry, if you remember, they threw him out of Nazareth. In fact, they wanted to throw him over the cliff and kill him. The power emanated from him, and, and then he made as his headquarters Capernaum. And more miracles happened in this little town of Capernaum than any other single place in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so uh, they came to Capernaum, and those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? It was a temple tax. It was expected of every pious Jew to help underwrite the temple and its expenses. And Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, before Peter, by the way, before Peter ever even said, hey, Lord, there's some people out there saying that, you know, you haven't paid your taxes. Jesus knew everything. And there are times when he operated out of his divine nature and you see his omniscience. And there are other times, and again, the circumstances and the will of God in those instances determined how he would do it. He would function out of his human nature only. So before Peter can even bring up the subject, Jesus speaks first. That little word first is important, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. A shekel was a special coin that's worth four drachmas. And then he says, take it and give it to them for you and me. So there's a whole sermon in here and the statements that he makes. I'm not going to, we'll never finish this handout if we, if we go down there. But just think about this. Jesus knew of a fish that swallowed a coin. These guys are out fishing and some guy reaches into his pocket or whatever and it falls out over the water. Oh, man, a shekel. Jesus has this fish swallow it. The first time you throw a hook in, you're going to catch guaranteed success that day. You pull the fish out, and in its mouth is going to be the four drachma that you need to pay your tax in mind. That's omniscience. Now, you go a little bit later to Matthew chapter 24, and it should say 2436 on your handout, 2436. Um, now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. Verse 32, you know that summer is near. It's just a sign in the physical realm. Oh, summer's approaching. There's a fig tree and it's putting forth its leaves. So too, when you see all these things, recognize he's at the door. What things? The things that he's just described starting in verse uh, 3 on. And if you remember from our study of the Revelation... This, this section of Scripture parallels two major parts of the Revelation. 3 through 14 describe the seal judgments. 
And then there's an event that takes place in the middle, the abomination of desolation when Antichrist will come and call himself God, and, and then the trumpet and bowl judgments will fall. That's the second half of this sermon. That is. So the, the, the parallels are absolutely astounding. And John just details what Jesus says here. So Jesus said, when you see all these things, this is it. And he's really speaking, among other things, to Jewish people who are going to be pouring over the Scriptures in this day. And they're going to be studying the Scriptures and realizing that these are the things that Jesus warned them of. He said, but of that day and hour, verse 36, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father alone. So when you see these things, know he's right at the door. This generation, the generation that's living there on the earth during the tribulation will not pass away until they see all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. But of that day and hour, no one knows. So Jesus was speaking from the vantage point of his human knowledge, not his divine omniscience. At this point, only the Father knows. Do I think he knows now? Yes, I do. In his glorified body, he's fully in tune. So what I'm saying here is that this word asthenia is used not only of weaknesses, physical infirmities, it's also used of intellectual infirmities, things you don't know. It's used that way of people in Scripture and even in our ignorance in prayer. Christ also understood, as our great high priest, number seven, our moral frailties as sinners. And that while he never sinned, 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin, right? Hebrews 4.15, we just read that, tested in all things as we are, never sinned, so on. Still, he was no less qualified to sympathize with our temptations. The Lord Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, and that he was tempted in every realm of temptation. You say, well, did Jesus ever, was he ever tempted to watch a dirty movie? They didn't have movies, <laughs> right? Was he ever tempted? You know, we could come up with all, but when you look at the temptation of Christ, Luke 4, Matthew 4, he's tempted in the three realms that every temptation would fall under that you can think of. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So he can sympathize. Now, people say, well, wait a minute. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. He uh, never sinned. How can he really understand the pull? Let's keep reading. Unfortunately, sometimes people have reasoned that because Jesus is God, that he could never know temptation the same way we do. But in reality, the opposite is true. The sinless Son of God knows temptation in ways we do not, because having never given into temptation, he knows the full strength of temptation and so can sympathize with our weaknesses. Again, we cover this in my course on Christology, the doctrine of Christ. In other words, when you're tempted, there's a pull, there's a pull, you give in. Jesus never gave in. So he felt the full strength of temptation, more than any man has ever felt it. We call this the impeccability of Christ. His temptation was not to show not to see if he could sin, but to show that he could not sin. But the temptations were real. One of the most helpful illustrations was given to me by a professor in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost. And he said, 
to me one day as I was dialoguing with him on this issue. I said, he said, Carl, it's like this. He said, think of, think of a, a solid iron beam that would be used to construct a building. He said, there's no way in the world you could even begin to want to try to bend it. And then somehow think infused in that beam some very soft solder that you can just bend like nobody's business. And the two are inseparably combined. The solder is still there, but the beam, which pictures the deity of Christ and the solder, his humanity, because they are inseparably fused. Jesus felt the full brunt of temptation, but he didn't sin. And it's a beautiful picture of what you see, and that's important because it, there are some cults over the years and some less than faithful so-called Christians, like Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen G. White. She taught that Jesus had a sin nature, just never sinned. That's heresy. Um, he didn't have a sin nature. His temptations proved that he could not sin, but his temptations were fully real, more real than any temptation you or I have ever had because we have all given it to temptation. Christ never did, so he experienced the full brunt of it. If Christ, number 11, had sinned, he would not have been any more tender and sympathetic towards us, for sin only makes us callous and insensitive. Contrary to the way some people reason, if the Messiah had sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. And so that Christ experienced the full force of temptation without having ever yielded to temptation makes him truly sympathetic. Therefore, in light of what he just said in verse 15, in light of who Jesus is, that He's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, that we have this high priest who can sympathize with our infirmities. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In light of these truths, we are admonished to come with confidence, or you could render it as the King James has in the New King James, boldly. It's, it's, uh, b- both nuances are in the Word. We're admonished to come boldly or with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest, is both omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's compassionate, and he's willing and wanting to help us. Again, you let these truths, you, you have to let them roll around in your mind. It's called biblical meditation. We'll discuss biblical meditation later in the course, but unlike Eastern meditation, where the goal is to empty your mind, biblical meditation is to fill your mind and is to take a truth and to chew on it and turn it over and over where the meaning of the verse really begins to get into your heart. And that's what changes you. That's what's going to change your prayer life when you begin to think about who Jesus is and what he has really done and how he wants to receive you. One of Satan's 15 chief strategies is to discourage us from using our access to God through Christ, making us think that Christ is, say, unapproachable. Coming to Christ boldly does not mean proudly or arrogantly or with presumption, but it does mean that we can come without reservation. We're welcomed. We're welcomed in every respect. 
And approaching him, we are promised that we will receive mercy. That is, we will not receive what we do deserve and that we will find grace. That is, we will receive what we do not deserve. And that's the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. And grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. And that's all possible because of the cross. So prayer, it's a discussion, it's a dialogue, it's communion between two people who love each other. Secondly, who can pray? Who can pray? The promises throughout the Word of God in prayer are not given primarily to non-Christians, but for those who have placed their faith in Christ. Prayer is the high and holy privilege of those who have become children of God. So let's think about that. Number one, those who pray must belong to Christ. The Bible teaches us that prayer is the privilege of those who are the children of God. And so Jesus can promise us in John 14, 13, whatever you ask, you being believers in the context, in my name, those who are children of God, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. To emphasize the truth that this is the privilege of believers to have their prayers heard and answered, King David tells us in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. And you've got the flip side of those same verses that we'll look at maybe next week. You are righteous if you've been saved. It's an imputed righteousness. It's a declared righteousness. It's called justification. It's not a merited righteousness. You don't, you don't become justified. You are justified. You are declared righteous through your faith in Christ. King Solomon records the same truth in Proverbs 15. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. We do know that nearly all of the promises in Scripture concerning God answering prayer are given to those who place their faith in Christ for salvation, such that they can approach God through Jesus. So Paul writes to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So turn the page. Since there is only one God, here's his rationale, there is need for only one mediator. That mediator is Christ Jesus. If there were many gods, we'd have many mediators, but there's one God, so there's a need for just one mediator. Sadly, some, of, some by their practice imply that Christ Jesus is one among many, and so they have included angels. Some pray to angels. I was in uh, the Barnes & Noble's bookstore and How to Pray to Your Angel. It was a popular... They had a whole section on angels. It really, it should have been under demonology because most of it was the wrong kind of angels. Um, some pray to the saints or the Virgin Mary as other mediators. In fact, an official doctrine and dogma of the Roman Catholic Church established by Pope Paul VI in 1964 at the Second Vatican Council is that Mary is to be considered as the co-mediatrix. So they just put a different twist in the word. Well, they wouldn't deny that there's one mediator but she's the mediatrix. And so there's the feminine mediator between God and man. And so, you know, the rationale that they use, I was taught this as a young child. Hey, look, you, 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 
You go to the mother of Jesus, and the mother of Jesus can talk to Jesus for you and, and help you out. So we would pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners now and to the hour of our death. Amen. And we'd say that over and over and over and over again as if she had some power to dispense grace, but that's Roman Catholicism. It's not biblical theology. However, to teach that the work of mediation in our prayers can somehow be shared between Mary and God's Son is exegetically impossible as determined by the preceding clause in this verse. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. To say that Christ is one among many mediators is to say that God is one among many gods, a thought that is clearly false. Paul simply applies to prayer what Jesus taught in John 14, 6. That's one of your memory verses. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That there is no valid way to approach God that does not come through Jesus. In our pluralistic world, most people think that, they, that any road can lead to God if followed sincerely or with a good heart. And so twice over in the Proverbs, right? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. While not denying Jesus' deity, Paul affirms it in the opening verses. He leaks, links the grace and mercy of the Father with the Son as equals. And he affirms throughout the pastoral epistles the deity of Christ. We are looking for the blessed hope and coming of our great God and Savior. He's both God and Savior. Um, so he's not denying, of course, uh, Jesus' deity. But Paul here is emphasizing Christ's humanity. Because without taking humanity to himself, the Lord Jesus could not be a mediator between God and man. The nature of a mediator is that he must represent both sides equally, and in this case, God and man, and so our mediator is both God and man forever. A question came into the Bible line yesterday at the Search of Scriptures website. I, we didn't do the Bible line yesterday, but they wanted to know, does Jesus still have a body? And they wanted to know, what was Jesus like before Bethlehem? Yes, he still has a body. He is forever in a body. We sing in that hymn, rich wounds visible above, right? And in his glorified body, come here, you know, look at my hands, touch my side. You will, you'll see Christ in a glorified incarnated body. Um, even though Jesus is enthroned in heaven above, 14, he is still human. For when the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, added humanity to his deity, he added it forever, not only for 33 years. And so the mediator we have as our great high priest wants you to know that he understands your weaknesses and you can come to him. This always raises the question, does God hear the prayer of the lost? Interestingly, in describing the prayer life of a Roman centurion named Cornelius, or Cornelius as the Brits will say it, before he heard the gospel and believed in the Lord Jesus so that he might be saved, Luke records for us these words in Acts 10. Why don't you turn to Acts 10? I think that might be helpful. Just go to Acts chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, right after the gospels, uh, it begins with Christ's ascension into heaven in Acts 1 and then uh, covers the next 30 years of church history. Luke is a premier historian. He puts all these little... Uh, historical clues throughout the book of Acts, so you know what time frame you're in, how many years into church history you are, and that's how we know it covers 30 years. 
So Acts 1 through 7 covers two years. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12, it covers 13 years. And then Acts uh, 13 through the rest of the book covers another 15 years. So Acts 10, hope you found it. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial to God. So let's make some observations. Keep your finger here because we'll look at some other things that aren't on your handout. He was following the Jewish hour of prayer by praying at the ninth hour or 3 p.m. So the first hour is 6 a.m. And so 3 p.m. is the ninth hour of the day which tells me that God was working in Cornelius' heart and that he was responding to all the light he knew to respond to. Evidently, he attended the synagogue and to the best of his knowledge and ability, Cornelius followed the Old Testament scriptures such that he not only prayed, but he gave alms to the Jewish people. Now, is Cornelius saved? We'll see in a moment. No, he's not saved yet. But he just said, your prayers have ascended as, an, as a memorial to God. So don't ever say, God never hears the prayer of a lost man, because that's not biblically accurate. And we're going to look at a couple of verses, actually several next time. I think we'll hit it next time. I think we'll get that far. Of, um, of verses that are often quoted all the time, like Psalm 66, 18, Isaiah 59, 2, and so on, uh, that God doesn't hear the prayer of a lost man. All of those quotations that we're going to look at are in reference to God's people and not lost people. We'll look at them contextually. But here's a guy, now he prayed three times a day. Was that dictated? Is there a verse in Scripture that says that? No. But for whatever reason, unlike Muslims, how many times do Muslims pray a day? Five, right? Jews, three. So you're in an airport, and all of a sudden, all these Jews, they put their caps on and whatever, and they're facing the temple in Jerusalem, and they go into prayer. Um, the, Daniel, you see Daniel praying at certain times. And so there was, it was, a, it was a, not a specific commandment, but it's something that the Jewish people had done for centuries, and they still do it. We do know, verse 20, that Cornelius was not a full-fledged proselyte to Judaism, for he had not been circumcised, but he did worship the Lord. If you look over in chapter 11, chapter 11 um, takes place after Peter had preached the gospel to Cornelius. So you got Cornelius, who is in this place called, you know, he's an Italian um, Roman soldier, and he's in this one place, and you got Peter in another place, and God brings the two together to the street called Straight. And if you go with me to Jerusalem, sometimes we have a chance on the last day to actually go to the place where Peter met. just depends on the time. In either case, um, the next day, um, Peter got up, if you look at chapter 10 and verse uh, 23, and he went to Joppa with a bunch of Jewish circumcised, practicing Jewish men. Verse 34, he opened his mouth and he preached the gospel. And uh, this whole group of 
Gentile believers are saved. While Peter, verse 44, was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, meaning the Jews who had believed in Jesus, who came with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And so God did a, a miracle amongst the Gentiles. It's what was mind-blowing, as we'll see here in a moment, was not that a Gentile could get saved, but that a Gentile could get saved and be on the same level as a Jew. They were instructed to be a light to the Gentiles by the prophet Isaiah and other passages like that. But remember, up until this time, there's no, Jewish, there's no Gentile believers Church is all Jewish until Acts 8, where now you have some people who are half Jewish and half Gentile. They're called Samaritans. And they come into a full reception of God where they experience the same kind of Pentecost, but it's a Samaritan Pentecost. But a Gentile, well, that's another ball of wax. Could they possibly be on the same level? And so while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on them. How do they know? How do they know? I mean, if, if, someone, if I'm preaching on a Sunday morning and someone in their heart believes, how do I know if the Holy Spirit falls on them? I don't. But there was an outward manifestation in the early church that God gave where what happened to us, he said, on Pentecost in Acts 11 happened to these Gentiles. What happened to us? We spoke in languages that we had not learned before. It was a miracle. And so there was an outward sign that God had worked. So in Acts 11, now the apostles, 11, and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So Peter comes up to Jerusalem. Those who were circumcised took issue with him. The Jews took issue with him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So there's a little rift in the early church at first because, you know, now we got Jews and Gentiles coming together. And Jews had one kind of diet, and Gentiles had another kind of diet, and Gentiles were viewed as unclean, and Jews, you know, there's just some deep-rooted, long-standing traditions and even prejudices that the early church had to initially contend with. And so verse 13, uh, well, 11.3, again, he, he went to uncircumcised men. That's Gentiles, right? So when you see circumcised and uncircumcised in the Scripture, we're talking about Jews versus Gentiles. So he reports, uh, verse 13, and he reported us how he'd seen this angel standing in his house and saying, send a Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which, underscore in your mind, you will be saved you and your household. So he wasn't saved yet, but God heard his prayer. Here's a classic example of God hearing the prayer of an unsaved man. So let's go back to our handout. In addition, we know for certain, number 21 on your handout, from Peter's report to the church in Jerusalem that Cornelius had not yet been saved. We just read that, verses 13 and 14. Nevertheless, God answered the prayer of a man who was not yet saved, but was responding to all the light he had. And so the angel said, your prayers and alms, alms are, you know, funds, so to speak, that you gave to poor people, have ascended as a memorial before God. 
The difference between Cornelius and many religious people today is that he knew that his religious devotion was not sufficient to save him. Many religious people today are satisfied that their good works will get them to heaven. But apparently, by the way God answered his prayer, he had been asking God to show him the way of salvation, and God answered that. He heard your prayer. So we cannot say that God never answers the prayer of an unsaved person, for God can show his common grace to any. And so the um, revelation of God comes on three levels. We often speak of creation, we speak of conscience, and then we speak of care. His general care that he shows to the righteous and the unrighteous. So expressions of God's grace shown to all people is seen in the fact that God causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Turn the page. And that's what reformers, the Protestant reformers, use the term common grace, just God's common goodness to all people. We must never forget that God is not against people. Is God against baby murderers and transgender people and homosexuals? And He's against what they do, but he's not against them and that he wants to save them. Someone wrote me a two-page letter, and they're leaving the church because I got too political on Sunday. <laughs> I knew it would happen. And this person obviously had not read the platform of the Democratic Party because it's brazen that you can kill your baby up until the day before the baby's born. We'll discuss on Sunday some implications, whether... President Trump, for all I know, he's already been dumped <laughs> during this prayer meeting. Uh, whether President Trump is president or Joe Biden is president, there's huge implications that are coming down the road. We may stay the decay for some years, but there are huge implications coming down the road. When you look at the average college student in America and what they embrace, there will be no morality in America. And the implications on the body of Christ, on Christians, on universities, on churches, on, on businessmen who want to run their, church, their business in a Christian way, the implications and ramifications are absolutely gigantic. If some of the things that page 41 of the Democratic pet platform enumerates are passed into law or by executive order, the ramifications are huge. But God is on his throne. He knows what he's about. Jesus said these days would come. Israel's gathered in the land. Lawlessness is increasing. The days of Noah and the days of Lot are upon us. So we shouldn't be surprised nor fearful nor depressed. Satan wants to rob your joy. There's no need to be depressed. God knows what he is about. Doesn't mean that we're apathetic and we don't do anything. We are to be salt and we are to be light. But God knows what he's about and he is on his throne. But we must never forget that God is not against people designed for them to go into judgment but that God is for people not wanting any to be condemned. 
2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance, but to be saved, as stated in John 3, 17. For God did not send the Son in the world to judge, or you could render it to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's his heart. The world's already condemned. He says the world is already judged already, guilty across every forehead. So that was not his spirit to come into the world to condemn. We're already condemned. By nature, we're children of wrath. He came to save. We can see why God desired to answer Cornelius' prayer and that he was responding to God's gracious revelation shown to him because God's desire for him was not that he perish, but that he be saved. Now, people can suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but Cornelius wasn't suppressing that truth. Look, what, what we have in our country now is a clash of two worldviews. That's what's going on. It's two worldviews. One that hates God and one that is at least respectful or somewhat fearful or reverential of God. And the two views are classic. It has nothing to do with Democrat versus Republican. It's two worldviews that are smashing together. But most people do not understand the scriptures in our day, and they are blind to that. 29, so God can answer the prayer of a lost man if he so chooses, especially the lost individual responding to God's initiative in his life. Remember, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Look, when he sends the Spirit, he'll send the Spirit to convict who? The world. What does the world mean? Everybody. The world of truth, righteousness, and judgment. And when a person responds to God's initiative, God responds to them. And so, yes, sometimes God answers the prayer of a pagan as part of his initiative to draw them to himself that they might hear the gospel and believe. In addition, God does promise in every instance that he will answer the prayer of a lost person calling on him for salvation. That's one we know will be answered. But the rest of the promises for prayer are for those who are saved. That's the difference. The promises for prayer, other than one promise given to the lost man that God will answer his prayer if he will call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, the promises are given to the people of God. And we need to know those promises. Pastor Ed, come and initiate this time of prayer, and I will close us in just a moment. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. You may be at home. You have your children around you. Gather with them. Teach them how to pray corporately. There's individual prayer, but there's corporate prayer, and that's what we're doing here. Now he was telling them a prayer, a parable, to show them that at all times they ought to pray, never to lose heart. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God... Bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? I 
tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Our Father, help us not to be faithless, but to come boldly, courageously, knowing that we are welcomed through our mediator, the Lord Jesus, who represents us before you at your throne of grace to find help in time of need. Thank you that justice someday will be perfectly administered. You've called us to cry out for little ones in the womb. You told us to, not to say, well, we didn't see it. You've given us a mandate to protect them. And Father, we think of our government that more and more is just endorsing wickedness and evil and transgenderism and perversion and wanting to teach our children in our schools these very evil things. You said it would be better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck and drowned in the deepest sea than to cause a little one to stumble. And so it's exasperating, but we thank you that you are in control and that in your perfect time and way you will bring your Son from heaven. Help us to be your faithful servants to represent you well, Lord Jesus, and to avail ourselves to your throne, and that even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, thank you for the Spirit who intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We bless you and thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.